Hello and welcome to Borough Talks, a season of discussions on food and food culture by Borough Market. I'm Angela Clutton, the host of Borough Talks, and this time my guests are Olia Hercules and Elizabeth Luard talking all things seasonality. A little reminder, this is recorded at a digital event, um, so there are a few clunks and hiccups along the way, but I hope very much that you enjoy it. So welcome, Olia and Elizabeth. Just going to do a little bit of introduction um, to... Um, the breadth of your work really. So Olya, born in the Ukraine um, and currently in the Ukraine, I think as well. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. So born in the Ukraine, lived in Cyprus, um, food writing as a second career. I'm so sorry, I have this crash bang wallet <laughs> which is really unfortunate. Anyway, um, born in the Ukraine, lived in Cyprus, came to London um, and trained as a chef. And this, um, the book you've just released, Olia, which is Summer Kitchens, is your third book um, with the other two winning lots of awards and gaining a huge amount of momentum for this very particular kind of work which you do. Um, so we are here to talk with Olia about Summer Kitchens, but also to talk about uh, seasonality more broadly, a theme which is very much close to the heart of our other guest, Elizabeth Luard, um, who when I started to write down her biog, I realised I had to kind of trim it and trim it and trim it and trim it because Elizabeth <laughs> has done so much. Um, Elizabeth is a chair um, of the board of the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. She won the Guild of Food Writers Lifetime Achievement Award a couple of years ago and um, you can completely see what's in most, most deserved accolade. Um, Elizabeth has done some 20 food books, food memoirs, writes for the oldie, um, amongst other things. Also, just the most extraordinary watercolours of food. Anyone who likes um, food illustration painting should definitely have a look at Elizabeth's work. And she has just re-released um, a book called Potting, I knew I'd get it in the wrong order, Preserving Potting and Pickling. Um, so we're going to be talking about that book as well. Um, I should also declare at the beginning, there's very every possibility this is going to become the most enormous love-in because Olia was saying on social media that uh, Elizabeth is her hero and her friend when I asked Elizabeth if she'd like to do this you raved about how much you adore Olia and I think you are both simply brilliant so love-in declared at the beginning um, <laughs> We, we, should, we should get into it and think about, the, we very much want to be thinking about seasonality, what's in season at the moment, late summer, and also we want to get into a little bit later about ideas about preserving the flavours of the season. But first up, let's talk about Summer Kitchens, Zoom probably doing its thing of turning the title the wrong way round. Um, <laughs> confession time for me, Olia, in that I completely wrongly thought it was going to be a book all about summer and summer recipes and it's so much more than that isn't it so maybe you can talk to us a little about what the title summer kitchens really means yes um yeah yesterday somebody said also on another zoom uh olia is there a winter version of your book and um yeah the the title can be a little bit confusing but there was no other way to call it because um summer kitchens is a thing in Ukraine and other, uh, you know, ex-Soviet uh, countries. Um, but in Ukraine, it's a very specific thing. It exists all over Ukraine in every region. You know, Ukraine is huge in the, in the south and the north. They just vary uh, in material that they're built from either wood or brick. It's a one room little house, which is, um, you know, uh, situated a few steps away from your main house. Uh, and inside is a kitchen. Uh, and we use it in the summer for daily cooking and also come September now uh, is high season for 
pres preserving things. Uh, so, you know, everyone, everyone gets their three liter jars out. It's a very specific jar. Um, they, they sterilize them and they get all of the glut uh, from, I normally say vegetable patch, but actually it's a small holding really that people have in rural, especially rural areas and small towns of Ukraine. And they pickle everything for winter because of course, uh, you know, Ukraine has always been extremely seasonal. It's changing a little bit now, but people are still doing it, still preserving. Uh, because otherwise, you know, you'd be left with your root vegetables and you, we need our vitamins. Um, so everything kind of gets uh, fermented. If it is fermented, then leave it in the barrels. Um, or it gets fermented and then kind of canned. So you, you ferment, for example, your tomatoes, then you, uh, you stop the fermentation process. So it retains the fizziness and the flavor and everything, but you stop the bacteria building up and, and they have the special kind of like key device thing and they can can it in the jar and put it um, in your cellar. And then you use all of these preserves in winter. You know, there's even things like they call uh, zimni salat, which means uh, winter salad. And it's basically all, almost like a caponata of sorts with tomatoes and peppers, etc., that they put into jars and put it into the cellars. So they are actual uh, little, um, you know, structures, little and buildings. Sorry, Olive, they'd be used for day-to-day -day cooking as well as being the place where the Yes, um, yeah, and one of the reasons why they also exist is because, well, one of the reasons uh, when I interviewed uh, people, they just said, look, and also in the summer, you know, not only it's so hot, it would be really hot to do it in your main house. The, the another main reason, another uh, important reason is because um, it keeps the house clean. So they're like, children are out of the house. You've got almost like your separate kitchen workshop where you do your thing, you shoot the kids out, give them something to eat, they're like, ciao, see you later. And then you just like in the zone yeah. doing your daily cooking and then doing this, you know, as uh, Elizabeth called it once, a semi-industrial pickling situation. <laughs> um, so, Elizabeth, can I ask you about these summer kitchens? Is it something which you are very familiar with from your own experiences and travels? No, it seems to, I came to it. I would listen to um, Olya talking forever and ever about it because it seems to me that um, it's a northern thing. You know, you doesn't really happen in the Mediterranean or in um, up as far as, I don't know, Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire. So um, there is a difference, maybe because of the climate. I'm not sure what it is. Um, it would be in the open air where my base knowledge is in Andalusia. So what Olya's describing is in the open air. A lot of salt is used, but fermentation seems to be a, an important part of the, um, the northern habit. And Olya in her book, she talks a lot about sour, which in the Mediterranean would be um, vinegar or lemon juice or something like that. Um, and the, we were more meaty, and the pig was important. I don't know if it is with Olya. Did you keep a pig? But the interesting thing about the... Um, the summer kitchen idea is, as Olya says, that it grew from the idea of you had somewhere where animals were, so you could collect manure. So it was absolutely, the cycle was really usefully complete. And the idea that you can control one area of your life when others are all over the place seems really important and very relevant to now when you see people mm. making sourdough bread and growing stuff in, in you know, tiny patches. Um, I've been doing a bit of guerrilla gardening in the, um, <laughs> in the Acton um, flower beds, which are sort of great big concrete bunkers, but unfortunately they come up with the Agent Orange and spray it before I can um, 
I put some potatoes in there that were doing very no. nicely. <laughs> and then, so I had to migrate some to the, the um, outside my window <laughs> where I've got potatoes growing. And I just cropped some tomatoes, I'm happy to say. Ah, okay, yeah. well this is easing us very nicely into thinking about what the produce is that's in season at the moment that people should be looking out for when they're doing their shopping and thinking about what they should be cooking at the moment. You mentioned tomatoes just then, Elizabeth, so let's, let's fabulous, roll, yeah, for tomatoes. roll with tomatoes for a bit. Yeah. Um, Olya, in your book you have fermented tomatoes. I do, yes. And uh, my mum's um, vegetable patch, uh, maybe at the end, if we have time, I'll actually take you around and show you. But so she's got these really massive uh, pink tomatoes uh, that we eat just as they are. We just cut them into thick slabs and just a little bit of sunflower, unrefined sunflower oil and salt. That's it. Um, and also she's got uh, smaller red ones, you know, uh, something like like the vine tomatoes that we have in England, maybe. And those are a bit firmer and smaller, and we use them for fermentation purposes. And it, the process is very easy. You know, people get a little bit uh, intimidated by it because there's so much science and kind of, you mm -hmm. know, uh, a, a bit of kind of fear breathed into it. But here, we, we didn't never knew about the science really. I mean, you just you just make a brine. Uh, normally, you know, about five, two to five percent, so twenty grams of salt to a liter of water. Uh, you heat it up a little bit with your to infuse any flavors. All spice berries are used a lot. Your dill umbrellas, uh, you know, dill heads, um, garlic, uh, chili, etc. And then you cool it down a little bit so it's still warm. And then you put your tomatoes into a jar. You pour the brine over. You cut here in Ukraine, uh, they don't even put, put it into jars. They, they leave it with a bit of a muslin over the top. But I find in the UK, it didn't work for me like that. It, it, it kept on going off. Here, there are so many yeasts and natural bacteria, bacteria and they ferment all the time. So they kind of have this microbiome kind of atmosphere. Uh, you know, so it, the fermentation process starts very easily. And that's it. And you leave it in this heat a couple of days. Uh, maybe for four days for tomatoes and then you bite into it and my mom calls them champagne tomatoes They're a little bit fizzy sour and sweet and they're just it's just the most delicious pickle, which of course we also uh, do a, um, a Fermented mash uh, of it. Uh, it's almost like a fermented passata and that you can use in a sauce or in your borscht or whatever Just to add a little bit of acidity so um, yeah. Elizabeth, in um, Gorgeous Preserving Potting Pickling, you have a recipe for conserving tomatoes as well, don't you? Which I um, scribbled down when I was uh, reading yesterday because I thought it was completely, completely lovely recipe. And also you talk about different ways that people could then use it in their cooking. Was it with the salt or with oil? Um, I, think it, oh, I think it was the oil, I think. Yes, um, because that, that's the other way of pickling, which um, because... Olya, when she was talking about salad, said that she used sunflower oil. And sunflower oil is a new import because it comes from the Americas, so it wouldn't have been around, so it isn't traditional. So the idea of melding in these, um, these different ways of doing things. Um, in the South, you will use um, olive oil as a conserving to keep out, the, the idea is to keep out the air. Whereas what Olya is talking about, the fermentation is allowing the air in. Mm. So one works these things out, I think, from trial and error as much as anything. Yeah. So looking at my tomatoes, I thought, what am I going to do with these? And I made um, 
because there were also aubergines in the market right now and chilies and um, frying peppers, you know, thick flesh peppers and plenty of olive oil and fresh garlic. I mean, there's wonderful new garlic. The garlic this year seems to have done its thing, you know, that we're growing in the UK. Mm. And so I made something called Ivar, A-G-V-A-R. Olya might be able to pronounce it better than me. But it's a Bulgarian, um, almost like a pisto or a ratatouille. So I have a kilner jar of that in the fridge. Um, And I shall go through it. In fact, I'm going through it quite fast. And it's all these autumn, these delicious autumn vegetables, which are cooked quite gently in olive oil in their own juices with salt. maybe um, garlic to flavor, maybe thyme, if that's um, hanging around somewhere, except I've managed to kill my thyme plant, I don't know why. And um, I, if I'm having lunch, I can just take a ladleful of that out, heat it up in a little, I like a cazuela, which is a, um, it's a clay pot you use in Spain that you can fry on it if you temper it properly with a fried egg. And, and it's just, Fabulous. You don't need anything else. You know, it's just gorgeous. That does sound completely <laughs> amazing. Um, should we think about courgettes? Because a lot of people have been saying on Instagram about having too many courgettes if they're growing them themselves. And the courgettes t- can tend to go nuts, I think, if you're growing them yourselves. You can end up with loads. I love how all it is just picked up summer kitchens and rifle through. <laughs> <laughs> Courgette caviar. That's, that's, in, that's in summer kitchens, isn't it, Olia? This is it. Yeah, this is the one. Um, uh, it's kind of like definitely a lot of courgettes and always a glut and peop- and you know this is what people do with it mostly I can't find it now of course uh, what you do is um, you caramelize loads of onions you cut your courgettes uh, quite um, you, you can either slice them into half moons or you can chop them up quite fine or even grate them just to speed up the process and then uh, and a bit of tomato and you just cook it down and down and down until the courgettes kind of also caramelize a little bit and everything is reduced into this almost like a really rich courgette paste and this is what we call call courgette caviar Uh, and my mom's got a fresh version so you can do a fresh version where it's a little bit the tomatoes are still a little bit almost raw you know it's all kind of like zingy or if you do this winter version where you're really cooking all of almost all of the um, uh, most of the moisture out and then you just use it in winter you just spread it on bread uh, traditionally we just eat it like that you just spread it on bread but I think there's so many uses you can use it as a pasta sauce or you know eat it with your uh, boiled potatoes or whatever it's really delicious that does sound great um, my confession is I don't actually really like courgettes and I'm always looking for interesting ways to cook with them and really kind of help the flavors along and I think your courgette caviar is one of absolutely yeah they can be really underwhelming and watery so you know cooking it down like that is something that I also yeah I love it yeah what about you Elizabeth what, what do you do with your courgettes uh, fritters it's mm. a bit troublesome but um they're just delicious because you can sit there and eat them straight from the pan yeah. <laughs> and um, which is the best way to eat most things um and also i remember in i was in greece with some americans who were inspecting their roots in thessalonica and there were about 200 of people inspecting their roots in thessalonica and because they were americans and they were a big organization um they had got some of the local women to come and cook for them and they were cooking um in frying vats deep frying vats and everybody was sort of cooking 
lining up with plates. And um, they were cooking gourgettes. They were cooking aubergines and gourgettes as fritters. So bowl of water, pile of flour, quite coarse flour is important, um, with salt in it, and that's it. And they were flipping the, the slices of the gourgette and the um, aubergine through um, this kind of coating and then dropping it immediately into the hot oil and then straight onto the plate. And one of the women hadn't come. So there was one vat that was free. So um, there was a, will somebody come and do this thing? Will somebody come and use the frying pan? So I said, okay, I will. <laughs> and, and always <laughs> inevitably. And I started to do what I thought everybody else was doing. And the line of women stopped and looked at me. And I said, why are you looking at me? And they said, because you're frying like a Spaniard. <laughs> and I haven't actually worked out what this combination of flipping sliced gourgettes and aubergines <laughs> through water, flour with salt, how I was doing it like a Spaniard. I mean, I have still to this day no idea. So that, that um, strong sense of regionality, which is not a recipe, which is slate of hand, which is an attitude. Um, I might have been leaving it too long in the water. I've no idea. Whatever it was, it wasn't, wasn't the right way. And they thought it funny and they tolerated it. And I didn't get less people in my line. It was obviously a difference. So what Olya does in her writing, and I hope that I do in mine, is to talk about why this person does this thing in this place at this time. So you're talking about control of a situation. That's what women do in the kitchen when that is the power that they have. If they can grow, if they have access to a little bit to trade routes, because you need salt, you know. In, in the area where I was, you were on a bound never to buy the salt because the um, caddy's salt flats were around the corner. And you could take a bus and a bucket at night and you picked up your bucket of salt and came home again. So the idea, and it was quite um, gray, the salt, so it had a lot of minerals in it, which added to what you were doing, made crunchiness when you were making a, when you were uh, making a covering for, you know, something soft like the aubergines, and was used to um, salt down the pig. The pig was hugely important because we were in a cork oak forest and they were Iberico pigs, so the old breed of, of semi-wild pigs, which actually ran all the way around Europe. And they were not sty pigs. I had to keep a sty pig because um, my neighbor said I was throwing away too much rubbish. And I said, um, how do you know I'm throwing away too much rubbish? They said, because Manoli the dustman, <laughs> who collected everybody's you know, recyclable, non-recyclable rubbish, um, looks at you and knows exactly what you're doing. Manolo the dustman knew everybody, everything. He knew who was in love with who. He knew absolutely the entire valley was under Manolo the dustman's. Um, and he was a grand man. He lived at the top of the valley and he had um, cattle. And his wives were, he had a wife and daughters and they were much admired because they could flip, they could flip a heifer, not actually a bull, over on its back when they were doing whatever they were doing with, with heel hooves or something like that. So, and he was in charge of the pigs. So I had to keep a pig because it had to eat, you know, what I was throwing away. And I had to do that. And I said, okay, I'll do it, but you've got to 
helped me how, you know, with the pig killing in the autumn, which is now, coming up now. Uh, it had to be a full moon. There were a huge amount of very sensible law attached to when you harvested things. And when I said, why a full moon? Well, they said, no, no, not quite the full moon, after the full moon, because pigs eat at night, so they'll be fatter. And every household in the valley went and helped other households. So I wasn't out of order that I said, would you come and help me? And it was a, a system, and you can't do it now because of you know, all the rules and regulations and everything. But, um, and I said, when they said, well, Tuesday's your day, and I said, um, can I not be here, please? And they said, absolutely, you're going to be here because um, you brought this pig to maturity and you must be responsible for its departure. So um, it was reasonably traumatic, but you couldn't be too girly. And um, at the end of it all, I introduced two good things to the, to the valley. One of them was the use of a hose pipe to clean out the intestines. Um, which you use for the chorizo and the, you know, the bigger ones for, actually, I don't know what they did with the bigger ones. Um, Morcilla, you made black pudding and they would, it's pre-cooked. It was a tremendous learning curve. Yeah. And I think what you're touching on there, Elizabeth, is really interesting in the context of the seasonality you know, subjects that I don't think people realise enough or enough people realise enough that th you know, pigs would traditionally be killed at a certain time of year. And then the, 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 the whole of the animal used in different ways to then you know, see everybody through the winter. I think we're so used now to things being available all the time. And it is this idea of you know, trying to get back to the seasons. And I think we're all, you know, on with it for fruit and veg but maybe not quite enough when it comes to things of the main meat gone Olya, go on uh yeah though no, similar thing uh, happened in ukraine pig is also a, a really big thing because obviously historically uh just like in spain you know um uh, muslims would take the cattle and pigs would be left behind um and we had and another thing that um, elizabeth mentioned that also used to happen in ukraine i don't know if so much anymore but uh, the, the feeling of community as well. So somebody will come and help you, uh, you know, slaughter the pig. Uh, the whole village would come and help you build your summer kitchen or your, or your house while you're living in the summer kitchen and everything else is being built, you know, singing songs. And in return for a meal, somebody said, you know, we, we everybody, like 50 people would come from the village, they'd help you build, you'd feed them. And then just at some point you will return the favor and help them build something else, you know? So it's just a lovely, mm. yeah. For all, anyone who, um, and I'm sure anyone means everyone who's loving the stories from Elizabeth there, um, if you don't have it, you've got to grab a copy of one of my absolute favourite books on my shelf that I reach for again and again and again, um, The European Peasant Cookery, which um, I think in this incarnation is slightly retitled as a rich tradition of. Um, and Olia, in Summer Kitchens, you call this a seminal book. I do, yes. Uh, I mean, reason, I, I think. Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, Elizabeth um, does uh, research in, uh, in so many ways, you know, for someone to have traveled in the ex-Soviet Union at the end, or, you know, in the late 80s, I think that's a really courageous and incredible thing to do, to not just uh, to not just, you know, go through all of the literature that there is, which she does anyway, but also to just go to Romania, you know, uh, go to Hungary, etc., and talk to people and record these things as early on, because, I'm, t you know, even that things are getting forgotten and 
uh, they're, you know, they're going into the ether. Like you, I've been interviewing people all over Ukraine. You know, we travel 10,000 kilometers or something all over Ukraine uh, and ask for recipes and for stories. And you really have to kind of like almost prize this information out, you know, um, there is regional cooking, but because of the Soviet Union, etc., you know, individuality, culture, everything's been kind of beaten down a bit. So in terms of Eastern European cooking, especially, I think she's done, Elizabeth has done such an incredible job to actually have gone, braved it and had that adventure. And yes, that is one of uh, most important cookery books. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think. It's something I reach for again and again and again when I'm yeah. <laughs> different things it's just a phenomenal book but Elizabeth I'm curious you know, to come back to this idea of you know, seasonality how you feel you know, over the years that you've been working you know, within food how you feel that our um, relationship with seasonality um, is, has, has evolved and is evolving well I think that um, it's been changing for a long time I mean when I was um, first married and I went to live on Mull for a bit in the Hebrides in the winter, all that was available was potatoes, turnips, uh, maybe you lifted the carrots, um, maybe a manky lemon from the supermarket, but really you wouldn't want to go back to that. And then gradually in Britain, we've managed to extend the growing season. The dominant factor in everybody's culinary habit is the length of the growing season. So, um, in Northern Europe, it's obviously maybe five or six months maximum. In um, Southern Italy, Greece, where I was in Spain, it's maybe 11 months. So you don't have the same situation. You have different, um, there's a pleasure in, in when the first strawberries come in, which we're now returning to, I think and a pleasure in um, the cherry seasons now on. Um, tomatoes, we've been growing tomatoes in this country as far north as Edinburgh since the middle of the um, 18th century in glass houses. So we had tremendous um, aptitude for stretching the season. But the big difference has been the introduction of, um, well, drying rooms for cheeses, which means we can now copy a lot of the continental ones, whereas before we could only make cheddar and, you know, Leicester and, that kind of thing. Nowadays, we can copy anything that we want. Um, the same is true of charcuterie. We can do that. Um, we did have, we salt or we brine, you know, on salt because of the climate. And we smoke um, to add to, to the um, preservation situation because we have a damp climate. If you just have a cold climate, you can get away with salting. If you have a damp and cold climate, you have to brine and you have to smoke as well. So um, in Wales, when I first went to live there 25 years ago, um, really there was nothing much in the market between, in the farmer's market, between ooh, April and maybe early, late June. So there was a, a blank, there was nothing there. So the idea that one would want to fill that with imported things was the first way that we began to get rid of seasonality, obviously. But nowadays, um, with polytunnels um, to protect or keep the sun in or, you know, protect us from to, to be able to water in the, in the summer and keep it warm in the winter, that's made a huge difference and has pushed the growing season way out. Mm -hmm. And I think 
increasingly will be seeing that as the climate changes we have to react to that there's no point in you know thinking that we can do anything about it is bigger than us but the idea that we have ways of of farming is very encouraging in my view mm. so if you go into borough market now um you know you will see well you see fungi probably gathered in british woods you'll see a huge amount of homegrown stuff that you wouldn't have seen 20 years ago it wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago and stuff that's dropped out too because um, we tend to sort of close down when we're farming. Um, we used to eat masses of hop shoots rather than asparagus. And um, you know that there's a beautiful um, gate on the way into the market where they have um, hops, but I think they're the leaf and the, and the, the, the flower head. But um, in Victorian times, um, hop shoots used to come in the market um, in enormous quantities. Mm -hmm. So an awareness of seasonality, that you need greens in the spring, yeah. you know, because you've been eating salty stuff. What was that lovely thing? Zimi Salat, that um, I was talking about. Um, and that, I've, I've had that, you know, all over um, Eastern Europe when I was researching. And what, what's that? Oh, it, it's a salty salad, isn't it really, Olya? Zimi Salat that you talked about, the, the pickled vegetables chopped up and dressed oh, with we... oil. That was Olya, not yes. me. Yes, Olya, are you there? No, I think we've lost Olya. We have lost Olya. I'm sure, I'm sure she'll be back. I'm sure she'll be back. Um, that's so interesting, Elizabeth, that all of that context about the seasonality. And I think, you know, from the market point of view, it's very you know, important that, uh, that for the traders, obviously, and also to try and get an understanding of seasonality across. You know, it's something which um, you know, a, a lot of the work is, you know, is done trying to get people to understand and appreciate what is in season and when and, and how to you know, embrace it and enjoy it. And, and, and at the moment, you know, we're sort of on the cusp, aren't we, season-wise? It tastes so much better. Yeah. You know, and the change between um, fruit that's gathered early and, you know, gathered late and, you know, those sort of subtleties. That, yeah. Again, they're not available in, re in, in, in recipes, really. You know, well, you that's know, very interesting. So, um, and I, it's actually, I wrote something down that Ollie had said, and, I, and we'll, I hope she comes back soon, um, about uh, she has a recipe for cucumbers and she talks about trying to use cucumbers later in the season. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And why would that be, Elizabeth? Because they get woolly and they lose their juice. Obviously, later in the season, if you get a tomato now, um, it's going to be drier, you know, and the flesh will be more concentrated. And I was, when I was in Sardinia, in the way that one is before we were not allowed to go anywhere at all, um, there was a conversation about various things, including um, tomatoes grown under stress. I'd never heard that idea before but tomatoes were grown um, on a promontory with no watering at all, but, and these were valued and cost more. So people were prepared to pay more for something that would look um, ugly. And they understood it because it was more valuable. So it would have a little light crust of, of salt on it. And um, the tomatoes, the tomato plants grown under these incredibly stressful conditions would attempt to produce as many and most delicious fruit as they possibly could. They would panic. Yeah, so, well, yeah lovely to have you back, darling. <laughs> okay, so that was a stupid idea because it was so hot that my phone <laughs> overheated. I do apologize. No, no, you did a very quick thing getting back there. That's brilliant. When people listen to people <laughs> the podcast, the I wonder AC. what happens. <laughs> Where are you? Where are you? you? You're inside now, aren't you? Yes. I'm inside now, yeah. 
I'm in the ex-summer uh, kitchen, which is now almost like a little summer house where we stay with my husband when we come and visit my parents. Brilliant. In the um, for all those who are um, watching, we're getting close to the point of um, questions. So if anyone has a question they'd like to ask Elizabeth or Olia, do use the Q&A function um, on Zoom and we will we'll get to those um, in 10 minutes or so. But Olia, Elizabeth and I were just talking about something um, which actually you know, came up when I was reading um, your book about um, how produce, thinking particularly about fruit and veg, can change as it goes through its season. I noticed it particularly in the recipe you had about cucumbers, about trying yeah. to use late season cucumbers. Yes, um, so whenever we do some serious, you know, pickle kind of um, gherkin fermenting for winter, um, they do it normally in September, so the last of the cucumbers, because you, it becomes cooler and you water them a bit less and they are drier and sweeter inside. So when you brine them, they don't become too like kind of uh, water, waterlogged. Um, yeah. So yes, definitely produce changes, of course, uh, even throughout one season, you know, throughout the summer, these cucumbers become different. Yeah. Uh, of course, courgettes uh, turn into, um, what are no. they, marrows, <laughs> uh, you know, which can be a, a, a one good, uh, I think, a good thing for one uh, dish, like uh, the potato and the courgette stew that we make, uh, they're quite good for that because it adds a little bit more kind of uh, uh, moisture to the sauce. Or if you're pickling, again, you are going to try and use them early in the season. So again, they're not as watery. Yeah. Um, so Olya, you're in Ukraine at the moment. And I think you said you're coming back to the UK next week or so. Yeah. What are the it's... elements of produce that you will be trying to grab as soon as you're back to preserve for the winter? Um, in the UK? Yeah. Uh, well, hopefully, I am. Uh, I kind of threw some seeds into my garden. I don't know why we had this really lovely organic pumpkin and I just thought, oh no, it's nothing's gonna happen, you know, it's cold. And then it's self-seeded and this gourd has just climbed out of my little vegetable patch and latched onto the uh, chamomile lawn and it's kind of like a big tentacle. <laughs> just growing out and kind of turning, you know, it knows where the chamomile goes and where it finishes. And it's actually developed um, a few uh, pump, you know, a few gourds. Uh, it's like a kind of like a green stripy pumpkin. I'm not sure what variety it is. As I say, a self-seeded wonder. Uh, what I'm going to do with it is I'm going to try and locate some uh, yellow apples, yellow skinned apples. And I'm going to make a, um, a recipe, which is actually out of summer kitchens. Uh, it's a central Ukrainian recipe where you boil, you cut the uh, pumpkin flesh and you boil it until it becomes super soft. Then you blitz it into a puree with some salt, again, about two or 5%. Uh, and then you grab your uh, whole apples uh, and you put them without the stalks, put them into a big jar and you pour it, you cover it with this pumpkin puree. Um, and that's it. And you leave it to ferment uh, for about three months and you can just leave it in your kitchen. Um, that's what I did last year and it worked a treat. And a very slow kind of um, fermentation process happens. When you do brine, especially if it's hot in a couple of days, you'll see this crazy kind of like, uh, action going on with this um, pumpkin uh, recipe. It's a very slow process. After three months, I looked in, there was no calms yeast, there was no mold, just little kind of poof, 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 um, little bubbles going up. And I took those apples out and they were incredible. The outside was a little bit um, fizzy and sour. The inside tasted almost raw. 
um, and this pumpkin puree, it took some of the flavor of the apple and they kind of exchanged flavor. Uh, and the fermented pumpkin puree with this apple was just incredible. Uh, you just season it up a little bit more with a bit of pepper, salt, maybe a bit of chili, and it's a great dipping sauce or, or, or you can uh, blitz it all together and use it with pork or something as a little kind of sour condiment. It's just such a cool thing, which we don't do in the South. I found it in central Ukraine, as I say, but yeah, this is something that I'm gonna be using, uh, using kind of like my poor juice. Um, I just need to source those apples. I will, I will take a trip to borrow with my sons and find some. I, I, so yeah, I think that's the one that I'm gonna be doing. And maybe my cherry tomatoes, if, if they survived whilst we're away, I'm kind of hoping I will also do, so, I'll ferment them for sure. And what about you, Elizabeth? Is there anything at the moment that you've been particularly wanting to preserve for the winter? Um, well, the ivar, you know, the, the, the vegetables, um, mixed vegetables. And the interesting thing about the pumpkin, of course, is that you cooked it, so it wouldn't ferment. I mean, it's pretty much um, inert by the time it goes yeah. on top of it. Yeah. Um, I've, I'll probably dry apples, but I might wait a bit longer yeah. um, in rings. Yeah. And that's... Um, that's probably what I will do. What else would I likely to do? Oh, I've just made um, I've just made damson um, a damson jam. I think it's a damson jam, but um, I'm very lazy about my jam making. I tend to make it in very small batches, so that um, I've been looking. I was looking at it this morning and thinking that I might make it into a plum chili sauce because I didn't put enough sugar in it. So the alternative is to boil it up again with some more sugar till it goes transparent. Or, and I got some beautiful little chilies in the market um, a few days ago, and I really love chilies because they're just wonderful shapes, aren't they? You know, the bonnets and the spiky things and everything. And uh, Elizabeth, if you add a little bit of Penny Royal mint to it, that's your Georgian Kimali sauce. When um, Olya came to, she came to see me, we were sort of, I can't remember what we were doing, but we were talking, and she had her, um, she had her garden at that point and she arrived with lots of stuff about this time of year didn't wasn't it and yeah. you, had, you had plums you had tomatoes you had um maybe you had potatoes we were going to cook lunch together and with great pleasure she arrived with this enormous bunch of um penny royal which is a member of the mint family and um I don't know how much you use it in the Ukraine. In Spain, it was always cooked with, with snails. And it's, um, it has a very kind of toothpaste-y fragrance. <laughs> That's what it does. And Olya's armful was covered in tiny snails. <laughs> and I said, hooray, we've got some snails. <laughs> that was the most interesting thing about the penny roll at that time. But I've since seen it used, um, recommended in all sorts of different ways. Um, around Greece in using as a flavouring. Um, it's an odd thing. It's a tea it's, it's halfway medicinal, really, isn't it? But with plum, it's really good. So, yeah, in Ukraine, we don't really use it. But in Georgia, they love it. And they add it to their spicy chili and plum kind of con condiment that they called kemali. Uh, just a little bit, a little touch. And you're like, oh, it tastes like plum, but there's something there. And it, it that, gives that, it that, would really work, that would work in my damson. Um, well, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Have you got penny royal in your garden? No, I haven't done it this year. I need to. I need to try and grow it next year. 
I might go and look in um, South, Southgate um, Rec, Southfield Rec, which is where I get my elderflower and my brambles and my wild raspberries, believe it or not, in central London, because um, everybody's noticed the elderflower, so I have competition. I have competition <laughs> for the birds for the berries, but there are other stuff, you know, and I, I, I think there might be, there's a, a patch of dry stuff which might have pennyroyal in it. So I will go tramp over it and see what, what I can find. It's got marigolds too. How, how absolutely brilliant. Um, I think we will start to go to the questions because I think we have quite a few coming in. I did, if we have time at the end, I would like quickly to talk about Borscht because I was really interested, Olia, in were you yeah. writing about this, how, how Borscht changes seasonally, which I have to say, isn't something I'd really thought of before so we'll get to that at the end if we can otherwise if anyone is um wanting to find out more about that or finds an interesting idea um it's all there in summer kitchens to have a nice read of um but let's think about some questions so we're talking about um fruit so we have someone who's asking um we make use of the whole fruit and vegetables um peel seeds flesh do you guys have a favorite fruit that you preserve the skin of in any way Oops, sorry. Um, so we're talking, we're talking about fruits um, and we're talking about seeing if we can preserve the skin somehow of any particular fruits. Uh, orange and lemon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, um, do you mean candying? Melon. You can candy melon brined. Nice. Any other ideas, Olya? Just trying to think. Um... I thought you off on a tough one there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Well, uh, la la la, what is... And you can, just, you can dry anything, really. Your apple, if you're using, you know, if you're, if you're making a, an apple recipe, an apple pie or something, and you're not using the skins for some reason, you, know, you can just dry them out in the low um, oven. And then in Ukraine, you would use that in a, in a winter drink, They're almost like an apple, uh, like a dried fruit tea that we make in winter. It tastes a little bit smoky as well because we use these dried smoked smoked pears. Um, but yeah, any 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 peel can be dried very successfully and then used to infuse or or to rehydrate and use in um, in different things, even stews and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, and also here's a good one, um, which is orange zest um, used in stews, very Provencal. You wouldn't make a dough in Provence without a curl of um, orange zest in it. And that's really easy to do. You just zest the orange and leave it to dry out for a bit. And that's that just problem. <laughs> not, not a problem. I think the point that Olya made, that this is not complicated. It's not rocket science. It's, um, it's not even technology. It is simply an understanding of where you are and what it looks like. I would imagine that what Olya does in London is not the same as what she would do in the yeah. Ukraine. Because you look at it and you know, don't you? Dry tomatoes. I might dry some plum tomatoes. It's possible because plum tomatoes are really, again, really good this year. But I haven't done it because plum tomatoes were Italian. So we're not within my kind of Andalus vocabulary. But the idea of drying some plum tomatoes, would you sort them? One might do. A little bit. We don't. We, 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 just, we just dry them in the sun, basically. Um, and then, yeah, as, as Angela mentioned before, you use them in your winter borscht, but we, maybe we'll get to that later. And you can dry um, gorgettes as well, sliced. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then in oil. Yeah, under oil, but uh, you see them strung on, on um, yeah. 
hanging in Turkish markets and opera. Yeah, yeah. Off the subject. Never mind. It's just such an interesting. I don't think you two can ever go off the subject and it not be a really fascinating diversion to have gone in. So it's all good. Um, we have a question about the role that sugar plays in fermentation. Um, lady saying that the quality of pickling is better if there's more sugar, um, but wondering about maintaining the deliciousness with maybe trying to reduce the amount of sugar. Or are the two so tied together? Um, so... Uh, so there's natural sugars in the in the vegetables. With for tomatoes, maybe we add a, a tablespoonful of sugar sometimes, but not for anything else really. It's just salt and water. Um, yeah, yeah. If you if you are fermenting tomatoes, you will you would add a couple of uh, uh, things of sugar, and maybe if you're making a beetroot kvass as well. Uh, but you can use honey as well. And if you're fermenting apples, actually, in brine, also a bit of honey. Um, which, which is better flavor and kind of a little bit better for you anyway. But, um, but sugar is not necessary if you don't want it. Unless you're doing an agrodolce, one of the Italian, you know, sweet and sour, then yes, sugar, um, the sugar oh, yeah. is vinegar. Maybe that's, um, who, is the, who's, who asked the question? We can't see the names. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's just a lady who's asking about her experiences of trying to maintain the deliciousness when she's um, you know, preserving produce, but trying to maybe limit the amount of sugar that... But honey is a great idea, Olya. I think you know, people feel more comfortable using honey and yeah. you get a lovely flavour note you know, through it. And sorry, well. of course, I, I immediately went into thinking about fermenting. Like, of course, if you're pickling with vinegar, it's hard not to add uh, sweetness and you, you, you need it really. Yeah, so yeah. Just, um, just... I think the lady is actually particularly talking about cucumbers. Was that about cucumbers? Apparently it was about cucumbers. Oh no, uh, if, well, we, we don't really do the vinegar ones, so we don't, if you're doing it just with the brine, no sugar, and actually they come out delicious. No, and, no need. And I'm going to give you another plug here, Olya, because in Summer Kitchen, the most amazing recipe for preserving cucumbers, and then you talk about using the cucumbers in this wonderful broth pork broth isn't it that you talk about yeah exactly yeah we we, we grate the fer pickled fermented cucumber and also you can use the brine of course which is really delicious just to add sourness to this uh, very simple uh you know you get a fatty piece of pork uh some barley or some buckwheat or something you make a broth and then you add a little bit of this brine and a bit of the grated uh gherkin into it the fermented gherkin and it just adds that piquant kind of flavor and it's really good I mean, I just within, think that's within, The interesting thing is what, what Ollie is describing within that, the recipe that she's talking about is a balance for health. You're getting in vitamin C, you're um, without actually even having to write it down. So I think it's sometimes a mistake to think that you have to be too prescriptive about what you're doing. You don't need a pill, you know, you, you cook for the season and you cook for, you know, for your lifestyle and you watch out for the medicinal value of it as well. It's always in there. If you're cooking for a family or, you know, that's a, a kind of idea that's hot wired into the whole process. I think that's really, really good point to make Elizabeth actually, that, you know, why is it that we think so much about seasonality? Is it, you know, just because gosh, you know, isn't it gorgeous to cook seasonally? And I think, you know, people maybe underestimate the real kind of health thing that kind of comes behind it as well. And we are, you know, so many of us trying to be a bit more healthy in what we eat and choosing shopping and cooking seasonally is as you say you know a big a big part in that it's all in there yeah anyway because if it isn't you don't survive 
So the traditional, the kind of knowing what your ancestors did till way back, yeah. does mean that um, you know you you have a, a healthy diet. It's it's built in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have um, some questions about uh, the books and getting hold of the books, and so I'm not going to leave this until the last minute. We should do this while we're still in prime time. So the uh, the two books of Elizabeth that I've been referring to are um sorry excuse me um so we have um european peasant cookery in my edition has rich tradition but i think as you say elizabeth it is more typically just called european peasant cookery which is available how can people track this one down elizabeth um it's in print it's um amazon or um grub street go on their website and um, if anyone doesn't have it it is a hole in your bookshelf it is <laughs> A great, great book. You will love reading from it. You will love the stories. You will love the recipes. You will find out so much that you just wouldn't have thought you, know, you could believe. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous book. Um, and then the reissued, um, Preserving, Potting and Pickling. That um, is really a companion volume, actually, because the research was done at the same time. But the new edition has got all my sketches and my illustrations throughout, which has never happened before. And yes, it did. It was Flavors of Amelicia. But it's just lovely to have to be able to do it because you can marry the re I can marry the recipes to what I'm talking about with um, and actually when I was traveling researching and I didn't have the language um, I had a sketchbook and um, it's just really small it's that size so and that's that's the um, oh, wow. So I can stand in a corner of a market and just do a sketch. Which and, and, and you do, I've seen you. I've had a great pleasure <laughs> seeing this at events or, you know, at a, at a dinner or something. And it's, and it's, it's mesmerizing because you just sit there and, and from nowhere appear these wonderful pieces of art. And as you say, your notebook is so small. And I was really thrilled actually when the reissue arrived and I saw that your artwork was in there because I do think your watercolors are completely amazing. Um, Olia, just to turn to Summer Kitchens, so this is your third. Yeah. Give a shout Let's out to the other two, I think it's worth it. Give a shout out to the other two. Uh, Mamushka and Caucasus. Great. Mamushka was my first and it's uh, all my family recipes. So Ukrainian with little interventions from Azerbaijan and Central Asia uh, as my well, family. We did Caucasus. Well. Sorry, Olia. We did Caucasus for the Borough Market Cookbook Club about a year ago, maybe a bit yeah. more. Um, and it was a total triumph, obviously. Um, and people completely adored it. And, that, and as is so often with your work, people adored um, the stories and the context as much as they adored discovering the recipes. And that's very much what's at the heart of Summer Kitchens as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, for me, you know, a recipe can be perhaps found on the internet, but the stories are something kind of unique and interesting and important to include. So, yeah. And again, you can find all of those books online, of course. Uh, but if you have a local bookshop, just give them a ring and drop them a line or even go in there and I'm sure they will have a copy or will order it for you. And I can even, if you ask them, send some book plates and do a personal dedication if you like. I've oh. been doing that summer. That's great. Um, okay, let's go back to the questions quickly. So um, Elizabeth, we have somebody who made um, your strawberry four day cordial after Rachel Roddy, no less, recommended it. Um, apparently it was completely delicious, but it exploded in the fridge. Um, and this, this lady's wondering um, what, what might have happened and maybe how that could be prevented next time. Stop opening the fridge. <laughs> really? 
Well, no, that's a um, fairly frivolous answer. Okay. Yes, <laughs> can do. Uh, how do you make it inert? It's because she's in Italy, I think, isn't it? And it's warmer. Um, so when she made it first, it might have started fermenting. Well, it's obviously fermenting if yeah. it pops. Um, so the key is to keep it as cool as possible. Is that the, keep yeah. it as cool as possible? I make elderflower cordial and I don't boil it. I pour boiling water on the flowers and add the sugar, but I don't boil the liquid. So there's something that can fizz in there. And I do keep it in the fridge tightly screwed. Right. I'm sorry. Get it out of the fridge immediately. Give it a boil up and put it back in again. I think <laughs> I mean, the point is very much that it was still completely delicious. So I, you know, I, don't, I don't think there's any, there's any problem with that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, uh, we have questions about spelling of recipes. Um, Elizabeth, you were talking about Ivar. Is that right? Yes. If people who want to look that up, how do they spell it? A-G-V-A-R. A-G-V-A-R. No, A-J-V-A-R. A-J-V-A-R. And if it's Bulgarian, I think that they've got the Cyrillic as well, so it's rather complicated. So it's, as far as I know, it's, it's pronounced Ivar, mm -hmm. and the, um, the spelling is A-G-V-A-R. Okay, brilliant. Um, Maria Caneva Johnson, did a, I think she did, she did um, a book on Eastern European cooking quite a long time ago and she gave all the equivalents in the, and they are so complicated because of this Cyrillic and the pronunciation mm. and the changes. And the Borscht even with, um, I had a conversation on email, I think with Olya about the Borscht because there is um, B-O-R-S in Turkey, which is fermented wheat bran. Beer. And in Romania, it, yeah. And it appears in is it's part of a Bors recipe in Romania. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, but um, that doesn't seem that I don't know what the connection is, but these things travel mm. and if they look like something, they will be given the same name. Yeah. But that, that fermented wheat wheat brand, that doesn't appear. In, apart from obviously in Rachel Roddy's kitchen, where we put it in the fridge, it would explode. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lightly fermented wheat bran liquid. Oh no, sorry, to be clear, Elizabeth, it wasn't Rachel's cordial who exploded. It was a lady who'd had it recommended via Rachel. It, wasn't, Rachel. it wasn't Rachel's cordial that exploded. Sorry, sorry, to, um, sorry to the lady. <laughs> I'm going to boil up. Um, stick it back in the fridge <laughs> or drink it immediately. Um, Ollie, we have a question, uh, same, same, same kind of question really about um, spelling. I think people are curious about how to kind of Google these things and find out more about them. Um, the Simi salad, T-Z-I-M-M-I uh, is the spelling which um, we're or going the, to... Or, or the salad in Ukrainian, like, that was in Russian. So okay. um, yeah, I, I'm not sure how successful you'd you'd be because it's quite a local kind of weird name for it. But <laughs> um, I can post, so I can make it here, and I will post it on my Instagram, and I will post the recipe for you because it's really, really good. It's actually very similar to the Iva that uh, Elizabeth is talking about. Brilliant. So yeah, I'll Brilliant. definitely post the recipe. I've got it. Um, we're coming close to the end. Um, we had just had a lovely question from someone asking about what breakfasts you guys have been enjoying recently that have been making use of seasonal produce. Um, toast and tomatoes. Sado. I'm not making my own sado. I'm really not making my own sado. You're the only uh, person not on Elizabeth. Or yeah, I mean. Other people's sado is really good. I'm, I'm get, getting into pasta right now. 
but breakfast for me will be um, tomato rubbed on um, toasted sourdough and olive oil and garlic because it's fresh and gorgeous and um, coffee from last night but um, heated up with milk in the microwave and that's it. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Olia, what about you? Is there any seasonal produce making it onto your breakfast plate? Uh, yes, uh, so my mum's got loads of these amazing massive tomatoes as well and we're just eating them like crazy. We had them with a little bit of uh, chopped onion the other day, uh, well this morning actually. And then also another thing that my mom has been making, because I love it so much, is you cut your ripe big tomatoes really thick, almost like into a big steak. And you fry them either in butter or in oil a little bit. Uh, so the juices kind of come out but reduce very quickly. And then you whisk some eggs with either a little bit of full fat milk or with a little bit of yogurt until super, super frothy. Add salt and pepper, pour it over the, the tomatoes and quickly cover it with the lid. And then it puffs up like a, almost like a souffle. So you've got this really light, delicious omelet uh, with these kind of like tomatoes in, in, inside. And uh, that, I've been having a lot of that recently. Wow, that sounds absolutely amazing. Um, Olio, one for you. Someone's asking um, that you've mentioned in the past that you often bring back produce or ingredients when you've been in the Ukraine. Is there anything you're eyeing up, stashing your bag this time? Yes, I'm looking behind me. There's the tomatoes there. So I, every time I, I, I pack this, I'm, I'm quite an expert at doing this now with, you know, because they're quite ripe and they explode. But I know how to do this now. And I bring a little box, maybe it's 10 tomatoes, but you know, we'll have them quickly. That's the kind of perishable stuff. And then I also always bring uh, unrefined sunflower oil, very local, um, very dark in color and smells of toasted sunflower seeds. But I think in the UK, um, yeah, clear spring do it um, as well. So you, you can buy it from Ocado or something. Um, and then another thing that I bring back is salo, which is cured pig fat, kind of like Italian lardo, but with just a tiny streak of meat. Uh, and mostly fat. And again, we use it uh, to fry things in or just freeze it, slice it thinly and have it with some bread. And another thing, uh, which I've got about four kilos over there already next to my suitcase is called solid. Um, and it's basically, they, uh, they get rye berries and make them a sprout. Then they ferment the, the, uh, the sprouted berries. Um, then they dry it. Uh, uh, until it becomes toasted. So it's like a malt, a, a fermented rye malt, which is then ground into this powder. And this is what I use in my sourdough bread, which I do make. Um, uh, and it just adds this incredible chocolatey, almost deep coffee flavor. So yeah, every time, solid. Wow. And that's spelled S-O-L-O-D. Uh, if you're interested and That's online, I think you can find you can find some recipes of how to do it. It's incredible. I highly recommend for all to all the bakers. Brilliant. Last thing, I want you both to give a couple of shout outs for produce which is just about to come into season. So as we get towards the end of August, September starts to kind of breach on the horizon. What are the things that people should be looking for if they're out and about shopping at the market or wherever? Elizabeth, you go first. If they're out and about shopping in Southgate Rick. Um, which is usually where I am. Um, crab apples coming in, um, which is, I mean, the idea that you can look for wild food um, mm -hmm. is just a really nice thing. Um, there's, um, in the streets, you can find rowanberries, you can find um, pears, um, little tiny, almost wilded pears, 
um, you have to ask um, the person who owns the pear tree because they're dropping them in the street. Actually, you can just get them from the street. Um, and then otherwise, I mean, the um, uh, brambles, um, blackberries, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And get to the elderberries before the um, birds get them, which is a bit mean. We should probably leave them for the birds. But those very basic um, flavours that you can then add to the wonderful apples that are now coming in and the gorgeous pears that are coming in. And this year I intend to find Poire William, you know, the William pears. And you dip the stalk in sealing wax, if you can find sealing wax these days. And if you do that, they will last until Christmas. Oh. Great tip, loving that. <laughs> um, Olia, what about you? What are the what are the things that are just going to start coming season that you're going to be most excited about? Um, well, I mean, it's it's uh, quite an unimaginative answer. I think I'm really looking forward to those apples. Um, the the smell, uh, well, you know, even just with kind of sniffing them, I just sit there if they're in the paper bag. I just put my face in it and that's it. And the smell of autumn is so overwhelming and amazing. I think uh, I'm more excited about uh, the things that are going to go out soon. So uh, if I go to a market, a farmer's market, or uh, when I come back, I'm going to grab those courgettes and those aubergines. You know, this is the last of it. I'm just going to be grabbing it, making, making some of that courgette paste actually as well. Another preserve that I will make for winter. But yeah, it's just kind of, trying to preserve the rest of the summer. And yeah. then, you know, pumpkins are coming in and uh, squashes and uh, maybe my green one in my garden is going to be good or maybe it will be rubbish, we'll see. Oh, I'm sure it'd be amazing. Um, Elizabeth <laughs> and Olia, thank you both so much. It's been such an interest, as, as expected, such an interesting conversation and completely joyous to hear from you both. Um, we're going to wind it up. Um, I hope that all of you who have been watching and listening have hugely enjoyed this. Um, I know ha I have, so I really hope you've enjoyed it. Um, we are back next week for our talks, uh, Wednesday, one o'clock. We are talking about restaurants. Everyone's very aware at the moment about the challenges uh, facing the restaurant scene at the moment. So we have three wonderful chefs and restaurateurs talking to us about the pivoting um, and the challenges and maybe even a couple of opportunities that face restaurants over the next little while. But for now, um, thanks so much for listening to Borough Talks um, and I hope we'll see you. I hope we'll see you again. Thank you so much for being such an amazing host. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Elizabeth. Keeping us on the right track, don't you think? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, guys. Thanks so much for listening to that edition of Borough Talks. If it's got you thinking about seasonal food, you can head to the Borough Market website where there are lots of articles and loads of seasonal recipes. And I hope very much you will join us on Borough Talks again.